A weekend at the cottage is a feast for the senses. There's the dappled sunlight reflecting off the lake, the tickle of cool water on dangling feet, and the smell of freshly brewed coffee while my family is still sleeping. But some of my favorite things about the cottage are the sounds. The loons at dusk, the lazy waves lapping at the dock, the crackle of a campfire. Then again, there's one cottage sound that drives me batty. It's the annoying hum of the mosquitoes when I'm trying to savor that last moment of the sunset. Luckily, off family care deep free keeps the mozzies at bay. It works for up to five hours, it isn't greasy or oily like some other repellents, and it's safe for the whole family aged six months and up. So I can savor the sounds I love when I'm at the lake. Hi, I'm Michelle Kelly, Editor-in-Chief of Cottage Life magazine. In this episode, we share expert tips on how to handle the tricky process of cottage succession. We explain how to identify frogs by their calls, and we debate the merits of July cottaging versus August cottaging. This is the Cottage Life Podcast, where every day is the weekend. Cottage succession is a tricky subject. Not only does it involve complicated legal issues and tax questions, it also involves having difficult conversations about the cottage and what will happen down the road with who gets to use it and how. Succession planning is a subject we've covered many times in Cottage Life magazine, and each time we've relied on the expert advice of Peterborough-based estate lawyer Peter Lillico. For 41 years, Peter has been assisting cottagers with their estate planning needs, and he's here to talk with me about the three main components of a successful cottage succession plan. It's a conversation that you don't want to miss if you're thinking about how to handle this potentially thorny process. Peter, thank you for coming on the podcast. So nice to be here. So before we get into the three main pillars of successful cottage succession planning, I want to ask a broader question, and it's one that has uh, come up time and time again when I've talked with cottagers who are entering into this process. Of course, cottage estate planning is about working your way through various tax rules and regulations, but more than that, it can be an emotionally fraught process. Can you speak about that a little bit? Well, cottages are very special things. We we know that it's it, they're not just bricks and mortar. It's uh, it's where you first learned to swim. It's where you raised your kids. It's where the grandchildren come to visit. So it's not just a financial asset. Uh, it is an emotional asset. And when it comes time to consider passing that important asset on to the next generation lots of factors come into play. Some of them, of course, are the financial ones. Uh, Capital gains tax has to be considered. Are children able to financially afford their share of the cottage if it's going to be shared usage? But in my experience, it's not the financial issues that end up being the roadblocks to a successful succession. It's the family issues and finding a path through the uh, family dynamics to a successful conclusion. Right. It's like Canadians don't want to offend each other all the time. But in this case, it's hard to have this conversation if you're not being completely honest, which might end up being a little bit offensive to some people. So you kind of have to work your way through that, I would think. Well, it's true. And also a lot of it's on the parents that are initiating the planning process. Right. Because uh, they will ask a child, are you interested in um, cottage ownership? 
And the child will always say, oh, yes, well, of course, we love the cottage. But the real question is, are you prepared to take on the responsibilities of cottage ownership? Right. Are you prepared financially to bear your share of the costs? Are you prepared to share ownership and all the issues that go along with that? Which is a, a different question, because the real answer that the children may have is, I love the cottage. I love coming up and visiting mom and dad. And they always have the barbecue going and the propane tanks filled and the beds are all made. And it's a great thing to visit them. But when they're not involved and I've got to do all this myself, maybe not so much. Right. And that's a key thing. If you're going to have a conversation about how to pass down the cottage, you have to make sure that the people you want to pass it on to are willing to take on the responsibility of owning it. I think that's a great tip, even outside of the three components. So, With that in mind, let's move on to component one. This is how you pass the cottage from one generation to the next. This is the succession plan. How do you jump into that? Well, there's a lot of pieces to the cottage succession plan, but speaking in broad terms, you need to figure out, well, number one, is there uh, a next generation person or persons, hopefully, that are prepared to and interested in taking over cottage ownership at, at the right time? And uh, if so, are they willing to share with each other? And uh, then if you've got candidates for cottage ownership, and they don't need to be committing initially to say, we are 100% going to be cottage owners. But yes, we want to be part of the conversation. Let's see how it works out. You have to add in the tax component, the financial component. Uh, Usually that involves an analysis of the capital gains tax liabilities for the cottage right now. And uh, how much is that? And can it be reduced? Can it be deferred? Will the principal residence exemption apply in your situation? Mm -hmm. Timing issues arise. Uh, Parents may say, we're not ready yet to pass the cottage on to the kids. We we want to retain ownership and control at this point. Uh, Timing may count for the children, too. They may be too young to be settled. Yes, mom and dad, we love the cottage, but, uh, you know, my job may take me to Vancouver. There's really not much likelihood of me being a a cooperative contributing cottage owner if I'm living 2,000 miles away. Right. So the various components of the family willingness, uh, the parental timing, the uh, financial uh, plan to deal with things like capital gains taxes, uh, whether it's done during the parent's lifetime, whether it's done upon their death, all of these things form part of the cottage succession plan. And I'm making it sound complex, and it is complex. But if you break it down into bite-sized pieces, then everybody can share the meal. Yeah, so it's interesting you say that because, you you know, just in that short answer, you brought up a lot of things that, you know, really do need to be considered and I think probably need to be considered with a professional. And one thing that, that I think... Um, is the thing that people worry the most about is the capital gains tax. And you talked about the principal residence exemption. Can you just explain that briefly? Every Canadian resident is entitled to have a residential property that is completely exempt from capital gains taxes. Uh, Many of our cottagers have a home in town and then they've got their cottage. Either the house or the cottage can qualify for capital gains tax exemption. It doesn't necessarily mean the one that you're at 10 months a year has to be your principal residence, while the one that you visit in the summer cannot be. So anything can really be your principal residence if you declare it as such. That's right. It can be identified and declared as the principal residence when you do a disposition of it. 
Uh, so the good part about the principal residence exemption is you don't need to decide in advance which of the two are going to be used for principal residence exemption. You can wait until you actually either sell the house or transfer by gift the cottage to the children. And then you can do an analysis to say, should I reserve my capital gains tax principal residence exemption for my house that's gained in value by $600,000? Or should I use it on my cottage, which is gained by $400,000? So with the assistance of your accountants and your professionals, we can identify the best use for your principal residence exemption. You can't get around the capital gains tax. It always needs to be considered early. Right. Okay. Great tip. So... Now you've got your succession plan underway, I'd say that the second pillar is the cottage sharing agreement. So this is really now you've passed it on and you have the next generation um, who might be more than, you know, maybe it's three siblings as opposed to two parents who are now in control of the cottage and everything you do with it. So tell us about that process of how you figure out how to share the cottage in an agreeable way that doesn't lead to problems, both, you know, emotionally, but also financially. Okay, so uh, good question. The cottage sharing agreement, though, should take place before you transfer ownership of the cottage to the children. So the cottage succession plan has led you to the delightful place where there are three children that say that they are ready, willing, and eager to become cottage owners. And uh, it may be upon the death of the parents, or it may be this year, because that's the time that everybody wants to do it. But before we do any implementation by transferring ownership, then we put the kids to the test by saying, if you're going to share ownership, we need to work out a cottage sharing agreement. There are a lot of issues that arise from shared ownership. So a cottage sharing agreement, one of the most important parts of a cottage sharing agreement, is a provision that says there are restrictions on transfer of the cottage. If there are three siblings who own and one gets disenchanted with the cottage or is put under financial pressure or gets mad at their siblings, they are prevented by a cottage sharing agreement from simply selling their one-third of the cottage to their neighbor with the, uh, with the motorcycle gang connections. Right. Or... They are prevented from applying to court under something called the Partition Act in Ontario to say, uh, I want my money out of the cottage. My siblings aren't prepared to give it to me. And the judge will say, well, you're entitled by right to have a court-ordered sale. One important thing then that the cottage sharing agreement will make sure is, is that it stays in the family. You have to give somebody an exit strategy. If you're saying you can't apply to court, you can't sell to somebody else. Typically, we will work out an acceptable exit strategy, which could be uh, if one wants out because they're, you know, moving to out of the country and won't be able to use the cottage. An exit strategy might be you can uh, sell your share, but you must offer it to your siblings and they get to buy it at a discounted price to make it more affordable. And maybe they can pay it out over three years. Every family will come up with their own exit strategy. Right. That's the sharing agreement, the second pillar. The third pillar is the cottage trust. Can you explain about that? So one of the things that uh, it it really doesn't matter, we're now at the point we've got a cottage succession plan. We have two or three children that say that they are going to be, they are willing to be cottage owners. They've proven their mettle by 
developing a cottage sharing agreement where they've agreed upon dispute resolutions and all of those important things. So now we are ready to implement. Now, implementation could be uh, mom and dad are going to change their will so that it goes to the children, and uh, but it's still not going to transfer until they passed away. Or it could be you've jumped over the last hurdle, the parents are ready to pass on ownership, and so they're willing to do a deed. So we're now at the point where we're anticipating how the children will share ownership. And there's a variety of ways, but the one that I'm highly recommending to my clients is that they pass on ownership to the children through their will upon their death or during their lifetime by a deed in the form of a cottage trust. And a cottage trust just involves the two children then or the three children as the trustees. So they do share control, but as trustees. And that trust structure provides very important benefits. The first type of benefit is it is a form of asset protection trust. For 21 years after it passes to the children, whether it's this year by a deed or whether it's in 20 years by way of a will, it is bulletproof against, say, one of the children having creditors or going bankrupt or even if one of the children has a marriage breakdown, and normally the cottage would be considered as a matrimonial home and subject to claims by a divorcing spouse, but the Court of Appeal in Ontario very definitively held in 2012, if it is held in this type of trust, then it does not come within the definition of matrimonial home and is therefore exempt from the frictions and the problems that might happen on a divorce. Interesting. The divorcing problem, um, I think that's very common, unfortunately, that it can lead to problems with the cottage ownership. So I think that's a key point. Well, statistically in Canada, sadly, uh, four out of 10 marriages end in separation or divorce. So if you've got three kids, the chances of one of them, however lovely the in-laws are, at some point during their shared ownership of the cottage, that one of them would have a marital problem. Uh, really impacts, potentially impacts on the other two. That's not the only advantage, though. That's only half the advantages of this cottage trust. The protection aspect is crucial, but also after that 21-year period of protective time where, in effect, the Income Tax Act says if you want to uh, not pay any more capital gains taxes, it can come out of the trust and go to individuals. And so, it can come out 21 years after the parents put it into the trust. It can come out to the children, and no capital gains tax is paid at that time. Now, the cottage could have doubled, tripled, quadrupled in value over that 21 years, but no capital gains tax is paid when the trustees say it's coming out and it's going to beneficiaries. Yeah, and that's a key point because as we've seen in Ontario over over the last decades, let's say, the last 21 years, cottage values have grown exponentially. So when it comes to capital gains, we're actually talking about hundreds of thousands of dollars here. That's absolutely true. And so one of the typical results is at 21 years is the three children will say, well, Thankfully, we've, we, you know, we haven't needed those protections or we were able to make use of those protections, but basically we don't want to pay capital gains tax. We're going to bring it out now to beneficiaries. One of the beautiful parts about the cottage trust is the beneficiaries include not only the three children themselves, but all of their children as potential beneficiaries. So the three trustees could say, 
instead of bringing it out into our names and then we go 20 years and pass away and capital gains tax hits, here are our 40-something children. They are wonderful kids. They love sharing the cottage. They're responsible. Let's, instead of bringing it out into our name, let's put it directly into the children's name. No capital gains tax when it rolls out of the trust to the, the grandchildren. And at that point, it's now could be another 40 or 50 years before the children die until capital gains tax kicks in. That's called generation skipping for capital gains taxes. Right. And very important, I would think, for cottage families that have, you know, this is very common. There's multi-generational cottages. That's right. And the cottage sharing agreement is multi-generational. It applies for the children's generation. And then when their children inherit the cottage, they also inherit the cottage sharing agreement. And with the cottage trust, you can have it go straight to the grandchildren and defer capital gains tax further. Okay, so you've really proven that the three components, the succession plan, the sharing agreement, and the cottage trust, all work together to make for a successful cottage succession plan. Yes, these are the techniques that result in what I call a successful succession. You can just die and leave it to your children in the will, but sadly, those are the cottages down your road where the for sale signs sprout because there hasn't been planning. Some children may not be willing to share ownership. They may not be financially able to take care of it. They may not agree on details. There's so many things that can go wrong with shared ownership. And if you have these three components in place, then you can sit back on the dock, pat yourself on the back and say, you've done a good job. Yeah. And who doesn't want to do that? (laughs) Peter, thank you so much again for taking the time to chat with us about this very important topic to cottagers. I really appreciate your insights. Okay. You're so welcome. Happy cottaging, Michelle. Thanks, Peter. So far on the podcast, Cottage Life's deputy editor, Leanne Bobechko, a.k.a. Mother Nature, has joined us to help decode the wild sounds we hear when we're at the cottage. She's taught us about loons, otters, and owls. And I've already heard from some listeners who've used her tips to identify these creatures at the lake. So I'm keen to hear what she has in store for us today. Hi, Leanne. Hi, Michelle. I have two sounds to play for you today. Ones you might hear coming from the lake or your nearby wetland as you're drifting off to sleep. Oh, okay. So these are the sounds that animals like ducks and beavers fall asleep to then. Perhaps. They are incredibly soothing. The sounds I'm talking about are frog calls. We're going to listen to two different frog species. The first is the green frog, followed by the American bullfrog. entirely sure that I would call those sounds soothing, to be honest. Really? Yeah, I don't know. They, they definitely are very cool, which is, by the way, something I say every week, that nature is so cool. That I absolutely agree with. The green frog sounds like a loose banjo string. It can make a single gunk or a series of them. It sounds like it's saying gunk, 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 gunk. Gonk, gonk, <laughs> gonk, like that. Yeah, like that. Maybe he's just describing what he's sitting in. Yeah, maybe. On the other hand, the bullfrog has been described as saying, jug-a-rum, jug-a-rum. And I read that the bullfrog actually gets its name from the fact that it sounds like a bull, as in a male cow. Yeah, and you do that sound so well, jug-a-rum, 
It really does sound like that. I'm impressed. I actually didn't know that the bullfrog was like a was in fact a male cow, that there was a relation there. Strange. So here's something else you probably haven't heard. I ran across a description someone posted online saying that the bullfrog call sounds like a lightsaber. What? Really? I've definitely never thought of it that way. It totally does. It totally does. Okay, I'll play the bullfrog again, and then after that, we'll hear the lightsaber. Okay, so here's the bullfrog. Now here's the lightsaber. Whoa, I absolutely get it. It really does sound like a lightsaber, or as my kids would say, a lightsaver. <laughs> now I do know how to tell them apart by their sound. That was great. If I happen to see the frogs, though, how can I know which one is which? Do they look similar? Yes, they are actually two really easily confused species. But bullfrogs are the largest in North America. Their bodies can reach up to 20 centimeters or 8 inches in length. And the green frog, meanwhile, is only about 10 centimeters or 4 inches long at their maximum. If you're looking at a not fully grown bullfrog, though, it can be hard to tell them apart. So here's another clue. Green frogs have pronounced ridges that run down the sides of their backs, whereas bullfrogs don't. Right. Okay. So, as always, the magic question. I want to know, what are they saying? Why are they making these sounds? Well, you will not be surprised to hear me say that it's the males doing the calling, and so they're doing it to defend their territory and attract the females. Ah, yes, that familiar yarn. So when can you hear them? These two species are relatively late to breed compared with other frog species. So bullfrogs are mating in June and July, and green frogs from June until August. So you can hear them all summer. Okay, so where do they like to hang out? Both of these frogs like natural shorelines with lots of vegetation and can be in a range of environments such as lakes, rivers, ponds, and wetlands. They will use smaller and more temporary water features over the summer. Young green frogs will even use puddles. But according to the Canadian Herpetological Society, they need permanent water bodies for breeding and overwintering. Herpetological. I'm very impressed with your pronunciation, Leanne. (laughs) It's a long one. Yes. Interestingly, these two species will share wetlands, but because bullfrogs eat green frogs, the green frogs will try to use different parts of the wetland, often closer to shore and with more plant cover. I see. So those smart green frogs keep their distance from those bullfrogs that might eat them. Very clever. (laughs) That's right. So tell us, what's the takeaway here? Frogs are sensitive species. They need habitat on land and in the water. They need healthy and intact wetlands and shoreline habitat to survive. In lots of southern parts of Canada, and especially Ontario, that habitat has been transformed by humans. Also, because their skin is semi-permeable, they're really vulnerable to environmental change and to pollution from herbicides, farm runoff, and road salt, which can kill them or cause deformities. And another threat to frogs is being struck by cars, especially when roads run through or near their habitat. Yes, I've, this has happened to me before where I've driven down roads and there's been frogs all over them. And it's terrible because it really feels like the only thing you can do to avoid them is to just not drive at that time of year. But are there anything, uh, are there any other tips that cottagers can take to help with the frogs and uh, to help the species? It's all the same stuff that we promote in the magazine. So leave your shorelines natural, leave wetlands undeveloped. Don't use pesticides, herbicides and fertilizers. And we can all get involved in helping track these indicator species by listening to calls in mating season, which is kind of fun. And you can report what you hear on an app such as iNaturalist or with programs such as Frog Watch. You can find out more about it at naturewatch.ca. 
Terrific. That's a great primer on two common cottage country frogs and the sounds we're likely to hear through most of the summer. That's right. The green frog who says, gunk, 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 and our Jagaram bullfrog, or Jedi if you prefer. Mm. Mm. That's my best uh, lightsaber sound. <laughs> Can't wait to tell my kids about that. Until next time, thanks again, Leanne. Thanks, Michelle. Even though I've been going to the cottage my whole life, I still haven't quite nailed my weekend packing routine. Whether it's forgetting to freeze the ice packs ahead of time or playing luggage Tetris with my vehicle, I always wish it were a smoother process. And the worst is when I'm heading north in long weekend traffic with a sinking feeling that I've forgotten something. With mosquito season upon us, one thing you don't want to forget is off Family Care Smooth and Dry Repellent. It repels mosquitoes for up to five hours, and it goes on as a smooth powder instead of an oily, greasy film. Make it a part of your packing routine, or better yet, keep extra at the cottage so you'll have one less thing to forget. Each essay that frequent Cottage Life contributor Roy McGregor has written for the magazine over the years has revealed a little truism about cottage living, something that we can all relate to. This piece, debating the merits of cottaging in July versus cottaging in August, was no different. The Flavor of the Month is read by Pedro Mendez. Welcome to the Great Canadian Debate. Not federal versus provincial, French versus English, East versus West, or even Tim Hortons versus Starbucks, but July versus August. We speak of summer as if it is a single glorious moment, but summer, like winter, has many different faces, some far more attractive than others, and we generally break our favorite season down to the two holiday months, July and August. They may both be summer, but are far from twins. I speak as one who has changed allegiance. For many years, especially when the children were small, we were a July family, booking, whenever possible, whatever time we could get as close to the Canada Day weekend as possible. Summer escape could never come fast enough. A few years back, however, I was forced to switch to August by dint of being assigned by my newspaper to cover the 1996 Atlanta Olympics, and have never looked back. We are now, and likely ever will be, an August family treasuring our summer weeks the way a child will sometimes hoard candy, the weight and the sure knowledge that it is coming almost as delicious as the chewing itself. Let us list, then, the factors in favor of August. The corn and tomatoes are ripe and cheap at the road stops on the way of the lake. The bugs are much improved. The black flies are gone, the mosquitoes reduced. And if we could only get rid of that horsefly that lands on your head every time you surface from a dive— Outside would be paradise to find. The evenings are shorter and slightly cooler, making campfires last longer and matter more. The water is perfect. The overpriced stuff of July is on sale. There are sometimes meteor showers on clear nights. The lake is quieter and the town less crowded. The smug sense that you can gloat over those who have already spent their holidays. The bondholder grinning at the investor who went with high tech the self-satisfied feeling of the one who set aside dessert for a bedtime snack. There is, for the August holiday or at vacation's close, 
a feeling that summer is truly over, not continuing on without you, and that you may as well return to jobs and schools and start signing the kids up for all those spare moments they are about to lose. But let us at the same time admit to the delights of July. Summer has arrived, and why risk missing the best days of it? There is a glorious, extravagant sense that the holidays are just beginning, and in the eyes of a child, will go on forever. There is more daylight, time enough even, to get 18 holes in at the twilight fee. There is a sense of newness, new toys for the water, new people on the lake, new bestsellers by the hammock, new projects, for those who must, for the cottage. You will have an early tan that should last the summer. You can sense the water getting warmer each time you dive off the end of the dock. The strawberries are finishing up, the raspberries out, the blueberries coming. The baby loons are learning to dive, an act someone once compared to dunking ping-pong balls. Kids, who control just about everything else in your life, are impossible if you do not get them to the lake immediately on school letting out. Your friends are going to be there in July, so how can you not be there? The locals are happy to see you, or at least seem to be. Summer still isn't over. There are, after all, still two long weekends to go, unlike the end of August, which feels like the first Sunday of the year, responsibility looming. It is an intriguing debate without clear resolution. Those who choose July believe they savor the best of summer. Those who choose August believe they get pieces of July anyway and get a prolonged satisfaction out of denial. Some insist on July, some swear by August, and some, like us, have flip-flopped back and forth between the two and may, before too long, flop back again, convinced that one month holds one more ray of sunshine than the other. Some others, we feel obliged to point out, are just as happy to let us argue the merits of one over the other. They go with September. When the rest of us go home and the lake quiets down again. When fires and morning coffee and mist on the water and long walks together take on a whole new meaning. And when the first streaks of red in the maples are a reminder of the best summer ever passing with even better ones yet to come. That's it for this episode. Thanks so much for listening. Please subscribe to the Cottage Life podcast for free wherever you get your podcasts. We'll have new episodes every Thursday throughout the summer, just in time for your drive up to the cottage. We'd love to hear from you. Post a review or email us with questions or comments at edit at cottagelife.com. And head to cottagelife.com to find out more about our magazine, our television shows, and our live events. This podcast is produced by Catherine Jun and me. I'm Michelle Kelly. I'll see you on the dock. <laughs>